because there's been so much change. Um, you know, we've got, a, there's a global pandemic. There's this racial awareness and wake, awakening in the U.S. There's, there's an economic crisis. There's, there's this, there's all these kinds of things happening. Our culture and technology are changing so fast. If you've been tracking with it the last couple of months, you're exhausted. And so how do you pray when you're exhausted? Well, in some parts of the Christian tradition, there's sort of like a list of Christian activities you have to do in order to sustain your life with God. And if you miss any one of them, they're sort of like, well, you know, that's why you're not happy. Uh, that's why you're not living the fulfilled, victorious Christian life or something. And you think, no, maybe you just have children who aren't sleeping. And that's why you feel the way you do. And so how do you pray with children who aren't sleeping? And, and how do you pray when you're discouraged? Or how do you pray when you're lonely? Hi there, friends. This is episode 88 of the Spirituality for Ordinary People podcast. My name is Matt Bruff, and I'm a pastor and an author, and I'm just so glad that you've decided to listen to this episode today, where I have an interview with Jason Gabry, uh, who is the author of a new book called Wait With Me, Meeting God in the Loneliness. We talk about how loneliness is really an epidemic and is affecting uh, young people especially, but people of all ages in massive proportions. And this may have only been heightened uh, during the pandemic that we have experienced. Uh, and, And so part of this conversation and really Jason's book is about, you know, could could we possibly be invited to wait uh, and meet God in the midst of our loneliness and and somehow in that uncover a depth and presence uh, and a depth of friendship uh, with God. Uh, we also discuss imaginative ways of reading scripture and why having a more imaginative approach to scripture is important. Uh, and also we talk about having particular spiritual practices for certain contexts of life, uh, even times of exhaustion, confusion, or struggle. So that's what the interview is about today. Uh, but I also wanted to let you know today, I'm super excited because uh, I have a new book that is coming out uh, of my own called Let God Send, and it will be out on November 2nd, 2020. And this book is all about how it is the God who is the one who's sending us out, and, and what we need to do is pay attention to that that sending call of God. And um, so I want to share this with you, uh, if you are one of the regular listeners especially, but even if you're just joining in and you want to check this out, it's it's a book really about how can we listen more carefully to what God is doing, and how can we actually be out there on the journey, taking steps, going in ministry and going for God, uh, how can we do that uh, in a way that is faithful in our world today? Um, if you go to letgodsend.com, you can actually pre-order the book there. And there's a couple of different options. If you're local to Manitoba, where I live, uh, you can order uh, for some local copies and uh, you'll get a signed copy from me. So uh, yeah, so you can go and do that. Um, but also there's a whole bunch of pre-order bonuses. One of the things that I'm working on uh, is... Uh, a study guide for people to do this as a group study. So there's actually discussion questions and reflection questions with every chapter. And uh, many of you might know that I led a discussion group of this back uh, in May, June. And uh, that was just wonderful. And thank you for those people who joined me in that. Uh, And so kind of use that as a test for what we might do for a study guide. So that study guide is one of the pre-order bonuses. Uh, it'll be available for sale later, um, but uh, but you can get it for free if you pre-order the book. Uh, also, there's a, going to be a limited number of audiobooks that will be uh, bundled with the pre-order bonuses. So I, I won't be able to give away um, a ton of those, but if you... Uh, go and pre-order early and then sign up for the bonuses, uh, you can get a copy of the audiobook as as part of your pre-order. So uh, go and check it out, letgodsend.com, and you should be able to get uh, links to where you can buy the book, um, on likely on Amazon, um, and, uh, and then also sign up for those pre-order bonuses. So I would love it if you went and checked out that website. Uh, But yeah, let's just head straight into the interview today 
Uh, I know you're going to love this conversation. I just love talking to Jason. So here we go. Today on the podcast, I have Jason Gabry. I'm really excited to have you, Jason. Um, welcome. Well, I'm glad to be here. Thanks yeah. for having me. Uh, Jason is an Anglican friar, preacher. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is the regional ministry director for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship's work in New York and New Jersey, mm-hmm. and uh, author as well of a new book called Wait With Me, Meeting God in Loneliness. And um, so we're going to talk a little bit about your book today, but also really just a bunch of the work that you've been doing, uh, especially with young people um, and those networks. Uh, But I also wanted to pick up on something on your website, which people should go and check out, actually, um, and uh, pretty easy to find because I think it's just your name and .com, right? That's right. Yeah, Um, (laughs) jasongabry.com. Yeah, so the very first thing on your website is, is this. It says, most people want a meaningful spiritual life, but find church confusing and disconnected from their lives. I help ordinary people grow the spiritual life they long for by connecting to simple practices that increase awareness of God, themselves, and others. Mm. And so I, I hadn't read that when I asked you to come on the on the podcast but my podcast is spirituality for ordinary people and wow. <laughs> so I thought, oh wow this is who i should have been talking to all along um that's great so i would love it if we could sort of break down that that statement a little bit um sure and and so i would see that kind of there seems to be sort of three parts there uh, yeah. one is you know what's so confusing about church and and why is the experience of church disconnected from people's lives um hmm. then you know, what, what do you actually mean when you say uh, that people want a meaningful spiritual life? Like, what is that? And then yeah. what are some of those simple practices that you might recommend? So that's a whole bunch of questions all in one, but you might want to take one yeah. of them first. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, that's a great question. And I, I love that. I love that uh, this is spirituality for ordinary people. I love to learn more. I, I have not heard a podcast yet, but I would love to learn more and, and dig in with you because I think this is really important. So, uh, I, I mean, I think the short kind of answers are, I think most people really are longing for a life with God. And, and part of that is, I think most people want to know that our life, that our lives, our life choices, our life direction has meaning. Uh, and so at the, at the simplest, most broadest, uh, most broad way of thinking about it, I think that, that that's what people long for. Um, very, very few people say, you know, life is meaningless and I don't really care. Uh, <laughs> most of us aren't satisfied with that. Yeah, except maybe the author uh, of Ecclesiastes. but you know. Except maybe yeah. the author of Ecclesiastes, <laughs> right. Yes, exactly. Uh, and he's welcome. He or she is welcome too, right? Right. Uh, <laughs> Um, so in terms of what makes church confusing and, and, and our, why is our experience of church disconnected from people's lives? I, I think for me, I should say first, I love church. I mean, as an Anglican friar, I've committed my life in many ways to be a symbol of the church and, uh, in formation in the Anglican order of preachers. That is actually one of the exam questions that they, that they put to you is, are you willing to allow your life to be a a, a walking symbol of the church. And so, so when I say the church, you know, find people find church confusing and disconnected. Uh, it's not a poo poo on the church. I actually love the church. Uh, but in, in the lot, in, to, to paraphrase a well-known pastor here in New York city, uh, he says, you know, no one cares about your preaching. Uh, they care about life and living. And, and too often our life with God is embedded in these structures that have very little to, you know, our, our life with God, i.e. in the church, is embedded in these structures that have very little to do with our daily life. And so at a basic level, that's confusing. You know, um, we go and participate in worship. We sit, we listen to somebody talk. We might sing a few songs. We might we might participate in, commun- in, in the Eucharist. Uh, and, but all of these things are sort of, what do those things have to do with paying taxes and raising children and, uh, and working in our a, a unsteady, unsteady economy and facing a global pandemic? And so uh, 
So it's that disconnection, which uh, I think, you know, there's this life with God is over here and then daily life is over here. And it's easy for those not to feel like they're the same. They're informing each other. They just kind of exist in different spheres. Uh, and, uh, and I think that's confusing for people. And, and I want to help integrate that. Um, and part of what I mean, this, this actually gets into the, what I mean by a meaningful spiritual life. The, the best way I can describe it is with a story. When, when our girls were small, I used to take them to school every morning. And on the way to school every morning, we would, we, we'd have a liturgy that we would pray together. And uh, one day, as we're traveling to school together, and but before we'd actually gotten into the liturgy, uh, one of my daughters described a situation in her class. Uh, there was a particular bully in the class that wasn't teaching, you know, treating her friend very well. And so we talked about this situation, which inevitably meant, you know, you have to confront the bully. Um, I said, uh, you know, we're talking about this, and obviously you can just imagine the fear and the anxiety that's coming up. I got to confront the bully. I got to confront the bully. And I, we paused, and there was this moment of clarity for me uh, as we try to transition from this conversation about confronting the bully to praying. I, I, I asked her, do you remember, do you remember why we start and stop, start and end every day with prayer? And she said, yeah, uh, we, we pray, you know, what you tell us is we pray at the beginning of the day and the end of the day for the times in between. Um, and, and I think that's, so she, you know, so she goes to school and she confronts the bully and she gets her friend's pencil case back. What I mean by a spiritual life, a meaningful spiritual life is this robust connection between, um, for the time in between, for the, for, so that when, so there are habits of prayer or worship or, uh, participation in, in our, in, you know, contemplation, meditation in our spiritual life actually gives us the ability to confront bullies, uh, to reconcile relationships, to joyfully celebrate other people's success, to give generously, to parent, to, to engage in uh, the work that we're doing when we're afraid it's not going to be enough. Um, and that's because what that does is that means that our prayer life and our, and our, and our regular life it, it come together in this really way, and in such a way that we're doing life with God, which is, I think, the best possible life, uh, is a life of kind of integration. Yeah, that's, that's, that's really good. Um, I think some people might think what's so confusing about church, they would immediately jump to, well, I don't really understand what's going on. Um, or mm -hmm. it's like the strange terminology or strange language or yeah. don't, I don't connect to ritual. Um, but I think you're talking about something different and, and perhaps deeper than that is this, this right. big disconnect between those in between times and, and, and the times of worship or prayer or liturgy. Um, right. so then, so then we naturally move to them. What do you do about that? Um, so <laughs> is that, uh, that might be both like spiritual practices or, or simple practices that you say yeah. in our own lives, like personal practices, mm -hmm. but it may also be practices of church life too, yeah. um, that you might want to comment on. So what are some of those things that you might recommend or, yeah. or what shifts <laughs> might you think, might need to happen um yeah especially particularly in church life but also even in our personal lives what shifts might need to happen uh to to develop more of that meaningful uh spiritual life that we might be longing for for sure well sh well uh shameless plug uh yeah. on the website uh which is jasongabry.com uh, i have articles uh, uh on spiritual disciplines for uh so specific spiritual disciplines for seasons of loneliness or mm -hmm. Uh, or for when you're angry and outraged, or for when you're tired and discouraged. I, one, one that's been pretty popular these days is a is a uh, an article that that is up there called "Pray Your Rage," hmm. uh, and it's recovering the lost art. This is both an individual and a communal discipline, actually. But it's 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 recovering the lost art of a lament and imprecation. Uh, so fancy big words that people are like, "What the heck is that?" Uh, but basically, learning how to pray you're complaining and curse uh most people think you're not supposed to curse in church but the the church has a prayer book full of curses in it in which <laughs> you know my my favorite is from psalm 3 
where uh, where you pray the, the the writer of Psalm three prays that God would would break the teeth of the wicked. Uh, you know that's 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 some heavy stuff. That's not nice. <laughs> you know yeah. that's that's a that's a real thing. But but what I love about that is it's just so emotionally honest because when somebody when some when you are confronted with um, with deep betrayal or you're confronted with evil in, in any of its various forms, you know, I mean, the, you can romanticize that the nice Christian, you know, thing, Oh Lord, bless them. And they're, you know, bless this person who's hurt me. Uh, but the more honest, emotionally honest thing is Lord break their teeth, you know, break the teeth of the wicked do make, you know, cause this, the rain down. And of course you have to say that um, you, you have to qualify that to say, in in our history, the, the fear that we have around praying lament and praying uh, psalms of imprecatory psalms is that uh, you think you're going to be emboldened to go and hurt people because uh, you know, the, the, the psalms are so aggressive. And mm. and the church does have this terrible history where, uh, in God's name, we've done terrible things. But the person who taught me to lament and taught me to pray in precatory psalms says, what we do is we pray our hatred and we entrust it to God. And that's actually the healthiest thing to do with it. Um, so, it, so, you know, uh, when, um, when, when somebody uh, wrote some really nasty things about me publicly and, and said some really, really hard, hard things about me, publicly that weren't true and they were at a particular time when when I a lot of us in university ministry were particularly vulnerable and exposed. I just felt so angry, felt so hurt. And everything in me wants to lash out and sort of, you know, sort of lash out or defend myself. And I just found myself praying in precatory psalms, you know, sort of praying the the outrage and the pain and the frustration. And on the other side of that is able to actually then bless the person, <laughs> right? But you don't start there. Uh, so, so, uh, and, and that's not just an individual discipline. Communities do that too. So, here in the states, there's been a lot of, and I'm, I know in Canada as well, there's been some uh, some movement around uh, this idea of Black Lives Matter and uh, unjust policing systems and what have you. Well, here in the uh, here in my community, there's a network of churches that are. Um, kind of called Pray March Act, and they're they're praying together, they're marching together, they're trying to build good systems together. And it's a communal discipline, but it's taking the energy, it's kind of responding to the energy of protest on the street, and bringing a spiritual uh, a spiritual depth and, and life into that, and saying we can actually pray this, we we can pray this, and we can turn this into prayer and worship. Uh, not by bringing, you know, Christian slogans to the party, but by simply turning it towards God in a really meaningful way. Yeah, I think that's, um, I think kind of a, there's been a, I think the need to reclaim lament is is something that's important. I mean, it's also sort of um, acknowledging, I feel like there's a quite a bit of like, uh, good Christians should behave this way or should not just behave because right. that might actually be right. <laughs> you know, that might actually <laughs> sure. be right. Yeah. Um, but, but even good Christians should always think this way or should right. always speak this way. Yeah. Um, but then what do we do with those feelings? Are we essentially just repressing things or are we letting those things loose and where's the best place to let loose is with God. If we can't trust those things to God, we're in, we're in trouble. Right. Um, and then also, I think giving language, I, that's why I find the Psalms super helpful. That That's often one of my go-to practices is reading through the Psalms. Mm. Um, yeah. Because we have, we have like kind of an external language that we can then internalize, I find. Um, yeah. And, and I think that's maybe a bit of what you're talking about as well as having, we might find that church or even Christianity or religion seems disconnected from life, even disconnected mm. from what our inner spirituality might be, or we yep. may not name it that way. But right. I find the Psalm starts to give us a language that if we actually enter into the language, we find, oh, this is actually really quite applicable to my life that I'm living in. But the church hasn't right. necessarily done that application for people well. 
Um, so, but hey, I'm a, I'm a Presbyterian, so we'll always go to the Psalms and say, <laughs> Here we go. let's let's read those, let's read those things. I'm an Anglican. We pray them uh, three times a day. So. That's true. You're probably doing better than we are. Um, other other practices that you would say are particularly applicable now, um, or is it more about life circumstance, or are there things that that should not sh- maybe not should, but are there things that are like best as part of a regular pattern of life that that we need? Yeah, I like to organize. Uh, so yes, I mean, I, I I think I think the short answer is yes. I think for people. Uh, it's good to have kind of a base structure of what 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 sustains us spiritually, right? And so, as a friar, uh, uh, I follow a monastic rhythm. So I have a morning prayer and evening prayer, and there's a certain number of times hours for prayer during the day, and there's study and there's there's contemplation. It's kind of integrated through my day, right? And uh, and uh, now, not everybody has that same structure some people have a different structure but but you have to have a basic structure but then i like to as best i can organize by context so what's the spiritual discipline that you need if you're shopping at the grocery store <laughs> right uh what's the what's the spirituality that, that you need if you're sitting in traffic or if you are if you are in a season where everybody's uh fatigued and just exhausted because there's been so much change. Um, we, you know, we've got, a, there's a global pandemic. There's this racial awareness and wait, awakening in the U.S. There's, there's an economic crisis. There's, there's this, there's all these kinds of things happening. Our culture and technology are changing so fast. And over the last, if you've been tracking within the last couple of months, you're exhausted. <laughs> and so how do you pray when you're exhausted? Well, well, one of the one of the things again we in one of the articles a, per, a simple contextual thing is pray as you can, not as you can't, you know. Because in some in some parts of the Christian tradition, there's sort of like a list of Christian activities you have to do in order to sustain your life with God. And if you miss any one of them, they're sort of like, well, you know, that's why you're not happy. Uh, that's why you're not living the fulfilled, victorious Christian life or something. And you think, no, maybe you just have children who aren't sleeping. And that's why you feel the way you do. And so how do you pray with children who aren't sleeping? And, and how do you pray when you're discouraged? Or how do you pray when you're lonely? And, and, so, and so I like to organize by context if it's possible, because context is where we live. Uh, and so, and and most people assume that spirituality is something that has to be done in long, intensely focused chunks. And I'm a big fan of of um, five minute solitude, five minutes of solitude, three times a day. Uh, actually, gives you 15 minutes of solitude uh, in in increments that most people could actually do it and if you spend if you spend five minutes sitting in a chair three times a day with no other agenda than to be present to god's love for you uh that will change you it it will it will enable you to live differently and so uh and and i think that's a great discipline for right now yeah i really like that too i was finding i'm a big fan of uh the examine and also prayer walking i find those to be uh practices that really helped me think through um, Mm -hmm. my life and sort of what's going on, what kinds of things I might need to work on or those kinds of things. Um, I find it helpful. I, and I'm someone who goes through seasons of different practices as well. Um, So I'm not committed to like, this is what you do every single day, but I was finding that I, in a time of exhaustion, kind of what you're describing, just kind of overwhelmed with, I'm reading a lot of, lot more news and, and, and it's harder and harder to read it. Um, I was finding that the examine and even the way I approach prayer walking, which was often sort of a observe and ask a question of, of around activity. Mm. I was finding those hard to do. They, they just mm-hmm. were, they weren't working at all. And I went, I actually found centering prayer, which is, which is kind of sitting in God's presence is pretty much what you're describing, right? Like doing yeah. that for five minutes or 10 minutes that yeah. became a, a more go-to practice for me when I was feeling like, oh, 
I'm just overwhelmed by all of, I already have too much input. I don't, I don't want to observe. I don't want a pair of practice. that's going to help me observe more input. Right. Um, I just want to just be for a minute. And I'm also somebody who wants a to-do list and has a whole bunch, always yeah. has like six projects on the go at least. And, um, and so I need reminding that I need to slow down. Mm. Um, and everything in the world was, was saying, speed up, speed up, get, right. get more done. And I actually needed the practice that was going to slow me down and remember that actually this is about the relationship with God, not about what God's going to ask me to do or what, or what yeah. the next thing is. Um, yeah. so I think context is really important. I think that's spot on. Wow. Um, yeah. And one of the little slogans, of course, that we use is, uh, pray as you can, not as you can't. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. That's really great. Um, which is, I think a really meaningful, pithy <laughs> slogan yeah, yeah, yeah. for, <laughs> for yeah, life awesome. with God. Um, so this book that, uh, you have out, um, Wait with me, meeting God in loneliness. I kind of want to just ask off the top why a focus on loneliness and on waiting. Yeah, well, uh, it's because we're in a loneliness epidemic. Yeah, uh, I didn't come up with that phrase. Uh, it was actually coined by uh, former U.S. Surgeon General uh, Dr. Vivek Murthy, uh, and he, over his time in the role as Surgeon General came to view loneliness as a public health emergency. Mm. Uh, there have been other studies in the UK, for example, um, uh, that are just pointing to more and more people experiencing loneliness. And, uh, and so we're in a moment where people are lonely. Uh, 70 over in the US, over 72% of young people, uh, people who are Generation Z, the sort of up-and-coming college students, describe feeling lonely uh, uh, quite often. And, uh, and that's actually interesting because we sometimes think of loneliness as a problem for older adults, and, and it is. Uh, older adults, uh, particularly, uh, you know, who are in their uh, over 65, uh, are 50% or more of them are, are likely to describe loneliness uh, regularly. Um, but to, to have the, our young people be that significantly ahead of older people in terms of experiences of loneliness at the time of life that should, that you would think you'd have the, they'd have the thickest uh, social connectivity is, is a real problem. Um, and, uh, and so I wanted to write, I wanted to write into that. Um, and then, of course, we had a global pandemic and everything got shut down and people got isolated. And <laughs> I mean, it's, it's only made it worse. Right. Uh, so. So, yeah, that's the waiting part comes from. It may, have, it may have also heightened a little bit. I mean, I think we already know people are lonely, but I feel like there's been a bit of a heightening of awareness. Correct. Right. So people have suddenly like there's this whole like, wow, we actually want to get together. Like <laughs> we're really missing this. Right. Well, yeah. And, and, you know, you probably, lots of people actually weren't really getting together before this either. Like, right. Lots of people right. were already spending a lot of time on zoom and, right. and in their email. Right. Um, yeah. Well, and, and it's, it's true. And, and what I appreciate, I mean, I don't appreciate so much about the pandemic, but what I do appreciate is that it, it's making us able to talk about something that's hard. Because when you ask people how you're doing, nobody says I'm lonely. Right. Most of them are. Uh, I mean, yeah. 70% of Gen Z, when you ask them how they're doing, they're not. none of them are going to tell you they're lonely. But, but 7 out of 10 of them are. Like, that's staggering. And, and so it gets, it's, it, 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 uh, it, it's something we need. That what can the church do better? The church can talk about loneliness. Uh, I mean, that would be a discipline for the church, I think, in a time like this. Um, it's so. striking to me too that the I guess this is kind of the subtitle of the book. The title is "Wait with Me," and then and then sort of the the subtitle is "Meeting God in Loneliness." But it's striking yeah. to me that at that in that subtitle, um, it's not how to not be lonely, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, right because um, because if it was, it would be a different kind of book. It, 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 it's a it's fundamentally yeah. a book about. It's fundamentally a book about knowing God right. uh, and having a life with God. 
And um, there are applications to being less lonely, uh, but but it's not really what the book is about. And, and the idea of wait with me comes from, this is Jesus's request in his moment of great distress before his passion. He is with his three closest friends. Uh, he knows that he is coming, he knows that his betrayer is coming and that he's going to face this incredible rejection and death. And the one thing he asks for is that his best friends would wait with him as he anticipates it. And none of them do. They all fall asleep on, on him. Um, and I, I was struck by just how incredibly deeply God has in Jesus has entered into our condition. Uh, and, and in that, uh, I, I sense, I hear an invitation to wait, to wait with Jesus in the midst of that condition, to meet us in that, in the midst of our, if we can admit our loneliness, uh, we can be safe to do that because we can actually meet God there. Hmm. Yeah, that's really good. <laughs> um, I wondered too, if the, you know, is the call of wait with me, um, that could, that could either be God calling to us, that could be us calling to God, right? It's kind of both, it's kind of both directions, right? I really like that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, This might be a bit of a shift, but I love this in your book. It's early on in the book um, on page seven. You actually talk about, and I think this is a setup for something that you do really well in the book. I didn't finish it. So if I've got questions, it's mostly for the first part. but uh, you you did this really well in the in the parts that I that I read. Um, you have kind of these imaginative readings of scripture or interpretations mm. of of what's actually going on here, um, mm. and you talk about that early on, saying um, reading with the heart and imagination deepens learning and transforms the habits of heart and mind in ways that reading for information, understanding, and even moral exhortation does not. Mm-hmm. And um, I would love to hear what you might have to say about why having a, maybe a different way of reading scripture is so necessary and so important, what you call a reading with the heart and imagination. Yeah. Oh, so good. Um, well, it's, it's because uh, we know God through reason and imagination, I think. And I think in the Protestant tradition, there, there's this strong leading towards the rational yeah. and the sentimental and away from imagination. And, and so I actually think that help, doesn't help us to know God. I think we know God through reason and imagination. Um, and so if you think of it, the most concrete way to think about it is think about a relationship with another person. If you only know them through reason, you may know a lot about them, but you don't actually know them. So you can go and you can read People magazine or you know some kind of uh, blog or some kind of blog that's following just Jared or something. You could read all about the celebrities, uh, you know that you and you could learn everything there is to know about them. But you don't really know them. You just have lots of information about them. A lot of us treat God like he's a celebrity. Like, you know, we can learn lots about him. And, and in, in some ways, the more theologically educated we are, the, the more we could we could be fans and less we are friends, you know, yeah. we sort of like geek out on all the great God stuff but <laughs> instead of knowing God. Um, now, on the other hand... Well, and, and then knowing him becomes uh, more about, I'm hoping the celebrity might, you know have me over to their house and, uh, and yeah. I'm hoping the celebrity might give me some of the good stuff they've got, you know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And then, but then on the other hand, you can, you can be emotionally attached to someone, but not really know them. So, the, you know, yeah, think true. of a toddler, a toddler is totally emotionally attached to their caregiver, uh, but they don't really know them or understand them. The only way we know someone, the only way we know another person is through our imagination. So, because because imagination creates the context for empathy, right? And so, it's only when 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 we listen to another person, they sh- describe their experience. Our imagination allows us to to kind of experience that as if we were them. Hmm. That's a function of the imagination. 
Uh, and and that then creates the context for empathy, and then and that that helps us that oh I I I empathize, and now I can begin to understand or at least have this kind of relational connection where I can I can put myself in this other person's shoes, as it were. Well, what imaginative reading of scripture does is it puts us in a place to know God because it immerses us imaginatively and empathetically in the stories of God's interactions with other people throughout the story of scripture. And so it matures our relationship with God from kind of, you know, being God's fans to being sort of spiritual toddlers who are kind of attached to God, maybe affectively to becoming God's friends. And there's this really incredible thing. I mean, in John uh, 15, Jesus uh, says, I don't call you servants. I call you any longer. I call you friends. And I think the point of the place where uh, the, the, the narrative arc of Scripture is going, where the narrative arc of Jesus' ministry is going, is friendship with God. Um, and uh, friendship, and, and that's only possible if we, if we are able to use our imagination. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And um, I'm wondering if you, like... How does a how does a a casual reader of scripture like yeah. engage with it imaginatively in the ways that you're talking about? It? Particularly if we've been somewhat steeped in a rational approach, or um, I think as well, like I do think we learn, and and you're saying that they're like we actually need the need rational as well yeah. as imaginative. But I yeah. I feel like there's lots of people that they've they've heard preaching primarily that has been like verse by verse, um, yep. you know, uh, what do these six Greek words mean? Uh, all of that kind of stuff. And, and don't have, haven't had much access to what does that even look like to, to read imaginatively? Yeah. Yeah. So I think what's a starting, starting point, I guess. Yeah. So I think starting with any, with the narrative, cause it's easier to imagine your way into a story, but it is sure. to imagine your way into a, into the Paul's epistle to the Romans. Uh, although you can, uh, currently, I'm doing that in the in the mornings, and it's been rich and fun. But um, but it's harder because you have to have lots of you have to fill in the story from other places, right? So um, so start with a narrative of scripture. Start with a small narrative of scripture, and simply ask yourself. You read it, read it a couple times, and simply ask yourself what what would it be? What would it have been like to to be a, a particular character in this story? Uh, and, and don't worry about which character you pick. You know, don't you don't have to be a main character. What would it be like to be a servant at the wedding of Cana, to know that there's no more wine, and to know that it's your job to care to serve wine, and to overhear this conversation between Jesus and Mary? Like, what what yes. would some what would some of the feelings be? What would some of your thoughts be? Uh, wh- how would you experience the the fact that only you that you know where the wine came from, but most people at the party don't know, including your boss, doesn't know where the wine came from. Like, and, and just simply asking those, what is this like? What would this be like? What would it be like? And then, and then just paying attention as you ask that those questions. Uh, notice what comes up in you. What emotions come up in you? Uh, oh, I. I I feel afraid, right? You know, even as I just, even as I just kind of walk through that, imagine being a servant at the wedding of Cana's story. What comes up for me is I imagine what it's like to be. It's my job to serve wine. The wine's run out. Like I start to notice anxiety starts to bubble up in me because I I've got some performance anxiety. I know what that's like, right? To have to have this desire to to perform well and feel like, oh my gosh, this is not gonna this is not gonna happen. And so now that I, I can experience that, then I can watch what happens because I'm emotionally engaged and I can watch it unfold. And then I can step back and I can reflect on, on, on it and say, okay, the, it, John ends this story by saying that this revealed his glory. How did this reveal Jesus's glory? Like, and, and, and uh, preachers have, have, you know, a certain answer to that story, right? Based on their theological 
kind of knowledge that they bring to it. But but in the story itself, how does this how does this how does the narrative in its in its own space how does it reveal uh, Jesus's glory, and what does it say about what Jesus is like? And and then you find yourself able to oh, I never considered that Jesus would really be that attentive to his mother, or I never really considered that Jesus would be that interested in uh, solving a problem that wasn't his concern, uh, immediate concern, or I never really noticed that Jesus was, uh, that, that, that if I, you know, I never really noticed that Jesus uh, I never really considered going to Jesus with the, my problems of performing at work because, because uh, I just, Jesus is the God stuff is over there. My work is over here. And actually here's a story in which Jesus is saying that now I'm not saying that that is a full the, systematic theology picture of that story. Uh, Cause I think we need the systematic theology to help us understand the, the broader concepts, but but affectively, but uh, relationally, those these pictures help help us to know God in a really powerful way. Yeah, I, and that's a great example because I think that's a story that people can easily relate to. Too, I think going to narrative is important. Um, yeah. I also think like giving permission to people that it's okay to relate to the story. Like, <laughs> it really is okay to do that. Um, yeah. And and I find like even where I think some of it too is is sort of retraining our our minds to accept that where mm. you know we might we might have a little bit of background where we'll say well weddings in Jesus time are very different than weddings in our time so we actually can't connect those and I've heard sermons do that where it gives yeah. you lots of historical context which is quite helpful but yep. it's not helpful if you're trying to connect to the story it almost disconnects us a little bit. So I think when we're trying to read imaginatively or, or with our heart to put ourselves into the story and say, like, you you went in a direction I wouldn't have necessarily gone to say, this is actually might be related to my work life. Mm-hmm. Um, if I'm imagining I'm a waiter, right? Right. I don't have to be the wait. I don't have to be a waiter to imagine what it is in my work life to, and what that might mean in the story. Um, yeah. So that's that to me is quite interesting because I think some of us might automatically say, well, okay, what was the last wedding I went to? And which yep. which is fine too, but you might end up yeah. with it in a different place, right? Than, than than where you just went. Um, but yeah, I think that's excellent, and I think it is incredibly uh, necessary as well. I think as well, we'd find, or I found, that the Bible sometimes here, like the Bible, is not. Um, uh, what's the word? Um, like it doesn't actually connect for me or it isn't relevant like this oh this right. isn't relevant anymore the bible or christianity in general isn't relevant sure but i find that it's infinitely relevant <laughs> like it just seems to me that god seems to do something through this text um yeah. that actually just continues to apply to life um well it's so it's so human yeah. the, all of the stories in the bible are human stories they are they're human writ large and and god is deeply in God immerses himself in the midst of these human, these hu- very human stories. And so we can relate to it. Uh, and we can, uh, the other wonderful thing about imaginative reading, the other great powerful question is, where have I experienced something like this? Yeah. And so, so it, it, it might be a wedding, it might be a work, it might be, it might be, oh, I, you know, I, I, I Hagar is a woman I, I talk about in the, yeah. uh, in the book and it's a very it's a it's a i think uh was one of the chapters i really enjoyed uh working on i know nothing about the experience of being a woman uh an egyptian uh or uh, a mother uh a castaway uh or uh you know a, a person in forced labor how but i i know something about rejection I know something about vulnerability. I know something about that sense of if this doesn't happen, my life is over. And it might not be as ex- it might not be as extreme as her experience, but I know something about injustice, you know. And so I can I can say, oh well, well I don't have to have the same experience. And that's the great thing about imagination and empathy, 
is it, my experience doesn't have to be the same as yours for me to empathize with you uh, if I can relate it to a to something in my life. And often that's where the Bible, that's where, where, it's where the, the meditations in, in Scripture in this way, in the book, uh, I use a lot of my own story because what happens for me anyway, and I think how it can happen for all of us, is we begin to, as we start to contemplate Scripture in this way, we begin to have uh, multiple scenes to, to use it to use the visual analogy. You have multiple things happening in our minds and hearts at once. So I tell this story in the book about the day my 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 parents' marriage died and my mom moved out. It was a really scary day, and I tell that story in the midst of a contemplation on Jesus weeping at the tomb of uh, his friend Lazarus, and simultaneously I'm, you know, and I'm geeking out over the fact that the Greek word that describes Jesus's tears is different than the other words in the passage that describe weeping. And the best colloquialism I can find is Jesus is ugly crying at the, at, at, at the, and so anyway, so there's this kind of geeking out that's going on. Meanwhile, I'm thinking about this experience I had as a kid, which was so scary. And I'm experiencing Jesus's compassion for that in my life, while I'm also simultaneously sort of ex trying to imagine myself in Jesus's shoes in the, and it's this incredibly profound kind of mix of multiple things going on. But because it's, because there's so many layers going on at once, it's, it, you leave an experience or contemplation like that and you just shake your head going, wow, it's amazing. <laughs> like I, God is amazing and life with God is amazing. Yeah, I, I think it can be, um, it can be tricky to try to sort all that out too, as well. Like it's kind of yeah. amazing that all those connections are there, but it can also be like, oh, okay, well, how do I, how do I think through all of that? Um, I wanted to ask you too about, um, and, and you kind of mentioned this about how do you, how do you relate? It's a chapter that you have about um, kind of being in the place of the desert. I don't remember if that's yeah. the same as the Hagar chapter or not. I'm, I'm I now, think it is. Yeah, I think it is that one. Yeah. Um, and uh, I actually, I'm going to read to you your own book here because sure. I thought it was brilliant. <laughs> um, said the pressure to perform to succeed to make it turns potential friends into rivals and learning opportunities into crushing defeats. This mm -hmm. isolates us and makes us lonely. How? Mm -hmm. How do we connect with others while overwhelmed by dreams breaking in front of us like a stack of broken dishes in the sink? How do we build friendships while feeling like a fraud? How do we reach out while overwhelmed? God's response to human anxiety, vulnerability, and fear of failure is to meet us in the desert. The desert is a place of profound vulnerability. It is a place fraught with dangers, physical, emotional, and spiritual. The invitation to the desert is not comfortable. It's counterintuitive. Um, and the end of that chapter, you, you have questions in all your chapters too. And so at the end of that chapter, you ask the reader, have you ever experienced, have you ever had something that you'd considered a desert experience and what attachments or fear, fears felt threatened in what ways might God have been at work? Mm. Um, so I don't know if you want to answer that question for yourself. You kind of just did a little bit, um, <laughs> but I just thought that was an excellent passage and I, you may just have mm. comments about that passage as well. Um, about this counterintuitive nature of going to the desert. It's yeah. generally not a place we uh, we want to go, but I think it's a place we find ourselves um, in more, in, and I mean that in both senses. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Um, gosh, there's so much to say about the desert. Uh, I, I, I've spent, I, I've spent probably more time than I want to have spent in the desert and probably not enough. And you, as you well know, the classic formulation of, of at least, uh, uh spiritual formation, the Christian tradition in the, in the monastic tradition is, uh, begins in the desert. It begins as, as the things that we think are really important get purged away. So when I was a kid, uh, when I was a teenager and a young adult, it was my acting career that was the most important thing in the world to me. And I couldn't imagine living without, without this career. And then when this career kind of get purged away, um, I, it felt like an incredible, it felt like a death, uh, it felt like a really uh, painful thing. Uh, and, and yet I, as I look at my life now, uh, 
it is so rich in ways it couldn't possibly have been had I held on to this thing that 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 I thought was going to give me life and really it really wasn't. Um, and and so and that's what the desert does. The desert the desert strips us down to our essentials. What is essential in the spiritual life, and what is essential to my life, and. Um, and, and we find ourselves in the desert because we find what, what we discover is we can live without, we, we can, you know, a lot of things that we hold very close and very dear are actually are not essential to who we are or to our life. And we can let them go. It's painful to let them go. When we, we let them go, what we discover is a God who meets us in the desert. I'm intrigued by the fact that the very first person in scripture to name God is Hagar, uh, this Egyptian slave, this woman who has is incredible, who's, who's vulnerable and oppressed in multiple ways. And she, God meets her in, in the desert, and she says, you are the God who sees me. And that's, that's, the, that's the, incredible, uh, the incredible gift in the desert is uh, underneath our attachments, whether those are attachments to people or to successes or to, to material wealth or to pleasure or to experience, whatever, underneath all of those, I think is a more basic desire, the desire to be seen, known, loved, and valued. And what you experience in the desert is that stuff that we think is so important gets gets kind of yanked away or purged away. And then you experience the presence of one who sees, knows, loves, and values you in all of your emptiness and all of your vulnerability. And it will ch- it will change, it'll change you. It'll it'll change it it, it, it will reorient what what life is about uh, in really profound ways. And so um yeah that's probably so much to say, but there, there is a ton there. Um, I also <laughs> wanted to ask you about the the chapter on grasping, and I think it's related to this actually, what you're talking about. Um, yeah. I, I found that actually, uh, in some ways, hard to read. Is a really oh. personal, deeply personal chapter, and incredibly well written. Um, and you speak about the death of your friend, um, yeah. Jason, another Jason, another um, Jason, yeah, yeah, and uh, and who was an actor as well, and had. Yeah a fair amount of success, um, yeah. as a, as a Broadway actor. Um, mm-hmm. and so, but it raised questions for me around, you know, is there, a, is there a good side of ambition? Yeah. Um, and is it all, is it all bad? Cause I think sometimes we're taught it is all, all bad. Yeah. Um, but my sense in the chapter was you, you weren't necessarily saying that, um, right. And then, and then there's a, a bunch of reflections in that chapter about uh, giftedness and and yep. giving and how we offer those gifts and and how that might be related to what can often be perceived as sort of only ambition and only grasping after something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the shortest way that, that I can I can kind of get at this is to say I think uh, grasping ambition uh, isolates us when the ambition is turned towards other people. Mm. And so when it's their gifts and their abilities and their opportunities, and I'm trying to grasp those things, uh, you know, I think ambitious and godly people, we, they, they, we've, we've launched businesses, we've started ministries, we've, we've planted churches, we've created art, we've, we've invested resources, built communities and that in government. And so the, the, the point isn't that ambition is, is bad per se, it's the is the posture of my heart to grasp something because uh, it you know kind of turn towards other people and their opportunities and grasping it for myself, or is it receiving as a gift? And uh, another way to think about it really tactically and practically is when we grasp, we turn our hands into the sh- we we make our hands into paws. Uh, I mean, our hands become instead of primate hands, they become more much more like dog paws. They can't actually hold anything. Uh, when we receive a gift, we have to extend our hands open. And so, and so with ambition, what we do, the, 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 I think the healthy way to use ambition is to recognize uh, everything I have, all of my abilities, my talents, my opportunity structures, resources I have, it's all a gift. I hold it 
with an open hand like this. And then I can, I can race after ways of deploying that. So, you know, I've written this book, which I think is relevant to uh, this moment that we're in and will help people find God, which is a thing I'm deeply motivated to do. Uh, I can grasp after this and try to control the marketing of this book and try to (laughs) make it do something important for me. And as soon as I do that, I, 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 I become less human, <laughs> right? Yeah. But I could say this, this book is a gift. It's, it's the best I could do. Uh, I, and, you know, uh, it's, it's not a perfect book, but it's the best I can do. It's a gift. I had the time to do it, the opportunity to do it. InterVarsity Press published it. And now I want to race after getting this resource to as many people who need it. So, for example, one of the things I promised God I would do uh, when the book came out is uh, in terms of books that I individually own, um, assuming I was going to teach, I was going to do, you know, events in person, which I'm not doing. <laughs> but um, but I, was, I said, you know, I will give this book to anybody who needs it, uh, who can't afford it. And I'll ask people, uh, I'll ask some other people, if I'm ever selling books at a conference or something, to buy two so that we can, that I can continue to do that as, as much as possible. Uh, the point here is I want to race after giving this resource to as many people as possible so that they can know God. Uh, and it's not, it's, it's I'm holding the opportunity and the gift like this, as opposed to trying to make something really important happen. And it's a fundamentally different different approach. But both of them have energy. Both of them are ambitious at some level, uh, which I think, uh, but one is ambitious in, in a way that pulls in and one is ambitious in a way that extends. And I think for me, what goes hand in hand with that is, is sort of the idea of envy. Um, mm-hmm. So we, you know, someone who who looks at someone else, right, and and wishes they too could have that same thing, it's still a grasping um, without actually having it. It's a, it's, I wish I could have that. Right. Um, and that's instead of seeing what they are offering or even what they are receiving as gift and being able to then appreciate the gift of someone else. And, and there's tons of that that goes on, um, in the world, but also even just in our own hearts, right? Like looking at someone's Instagram feed and thinking, Oh, you know, look at their book. Their book went to number one and mine's stuck stuck there in this category and in the doldrums of Amazon somewhere. Right. Um, (laughs) and, and, and we, and we envy and, and that's just, that's just how, what happens. Um, but I think it's a similar kinds of kind of thing, right? It's this, Mm -hmm. well, what, what are we doing? Like, and, and why are we not seeing that person's, what the world says is success? I guess it is success, yeah. but why are we not seeing yeah. that as well? This is a tremendous gift now to the world. Yeah. Um, and potentially for that person as well, for them to be able to continue the work that they're doing. Um, yeah. I, and I think we need a lot more of that, you know, even in getting back to the loneliness idea, um, mm. you know, seeing, I actually love it when I see in my church that people are, um, you know, chatting with one another. Like this isn't happening. This hasn't been happening lately because I can't actually see them talking to one another uh, in an online setting. Um, but you know, when when I see like a group of people chatting to one another and another group of people mm-hmm. chatting to one another, I, I love seeing that, and mm-hmm. I I almost revel in. I'm not included. <laughs> right. you know? Like sure. great, you're having communion community without the pastor. That's, yeah. that's great. Awesome. Um, and so I actually think we need a little more of that as well, where it's like, I could, I could sit and think, Oh, they haven't invited me. And yeah. I could feel bad about that and feel, Oh, I'm lonely or whatever. Um, right. But I actually don't like, I, I really don't. Yeah. I really just celebrate that. Wow. They've found a gift, the gift of one another and companionship and, and, and seem to be enjoying being together. Isn't that great? Other people yeah. might look at it and say, wow, they're cliquey. Yeah. And I would sure. say, well, no, they're a deepening Christian community. <laughs> we, we should find one of those for you too. Like, let's, right. let's, let's right. do that. You don't need to be in their group. Let's find another group. Right. Um, and see that as a gift as opposed to envying uh, what someone else has. Right. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> um, I've really enjoyed this conversation, uh, but we are we are really at our end of our time here, Jason. But uh, I feel like I could talk to you a whole lot more about this, and I really encourage people to sure. go and check out your book and uh, and your website too. 
yeah. yeah, thanks for being on today. Oh, yeah, it's my pleasure. Really good to be with you. Thanks for listening today. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Jason Gabery. And I encourage you to go and check out his book, Wait With Me, Meeting God in the Loneliness. Uh, Also, uh, feel free to go and check out Let God Send, my new book that's coming out in November 2020. Uh, And you can go to letgodsend.com and you can pre-order the book from there and also sign up for those pre-order bonuses that I told you about. Uh, Yeah, and if you're enjoying this podcast please consider leaving a review. Uh, You can do that in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this podcast, you can leave a review. Uh, And feel free anytime to reach out to me. You can email me at matt at mattbruff.com or just check out the regular spirituality for ordinary people.com website to get back episodes and uh, be in touch with me through that website. All right, everyone, thanks for listening again and take care.